We are live. Thanks, brother. Good morning. Good morning. It's a, it's a privilege for me to be here. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know my brother Nathan and uh, meeting with him on on occasion. Um, I'm really a nobody, and uh, uh, Nathan speaks very kind words. But you know what? I'm just I'm just trying to do what what my father has called me to do on a daily basis. And there's no grand plan. There's just to get up in the morning and, and go do what the what the Lord has done. And God is uh, in His sovereign grace brought me here today. And and I loved the worship here today. Historic, yet open and free. And it was it was beautiful, and I and I love that. On that table over there, I think uh, there's some information about the door on the way out. Okay, on the way the door on the way out. There's a there's a kind of a flyer that uh, tells you a bit about our mission and and what I do. And you're welcome to take one and get to know. Now, the reason I asked you to to take consider taking one of those is because we need people to pray, because prayer is essential to the work of Christ. Prayer is essential to mission. Uh, prayer is essential uh, to God's will being done. So I need plenty of people praying for what we do. And so I ask you all uh, to consider taking one of those and praying. Um, I'm excited to be here. God has given me a text that I'm really excited about. And it's, uh, it's, it's I don't have a slideshow, sorry kind of old school, you know, and actually I have a paper Bible. And so I, I uh, want to open Ephesians chapter 5 with you, if you would, please. Ephesians chapter 5. I noticed that in the bulletin there is a place for three, three-part notes on imitating God. And I have, I'm going to give you three things to write in those places because I know that one of, the, one of the things that as we understand brain research and as we understand learning styles, that actually having a pen in your hand and actually writing uh, ignites the brain in a way that nothing else does. It's, it's, it's really cool in the way you do that. In fact, in my, in my book, I talk about um, how writing prayers and copying scriptures ignites the left and the right hemispheres of the brain and gets us going with God in a way that he designed for us. And it's just incredible, you know, and I just, I thank God for that. I don't know whose message that was. Maybe it was mine. I'm not sure. Um, Before I go any further, let me pray. Father, open the word to us, we ask. May your truth be proclaimed in such a way by you that we here are encouraged and then move forward as we follow Jesus. Thank you, Father. You are great and glorious and worthy of, of our praise. You're worthy of our honor. And we give that to you now and ask you that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand the word that he has inspired. Open our hearts and minds. Train our hearts and minds, we pray, that we may become better disciples of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So uh, my wife and I have just returned from uh, an extended period of time in Northern Virginia where our younger daughter lives with her husband and uh, their two-year-old and almost three-week-old, uh, two-year-old son and almost three-week-old daughter. And Anna's been up there for two weeks. I spent the last week up there and 
listen, you want to you want to see uh, Grandma, who is awesome to the extreme. There, there she sits right over there. I mean, she's just she just did it all. It was amazing to watch this woman at work. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did some chauffeur duty and some playing with Lego duty, which is I'm pretty good at that. Right. And, and it's, uh, it's a skill that I actually use on the field with the children of the, the missionaries and the pastors with whom I work. And there's lots. In fact, if you went and, and searched on Facebook, I bet you could find plenty of pictures of me and and three and four year old kids in Legos. I guarantee it. Uh, if you if you l- looked hard enough, our grandson, his name is Wyatt. And I discovered this week that Wyatt has learned how to react to something by going, oh, man. <laughs> do you ever do that? Oh, man. You know, we can use that phrase in a lot of ways. Oh, man, that's awesome. Or, or you drop, oh, man, I dropped that. Or, oh, man, I spilled something on my shirt like I did this morning. You know, I was trying to get it off. And, and Wyatt, two, at two years old, has learned how to go, oh, man. So I heard him say, oh, man. And I was, I was like, what? That's, that's, and it hit me. How did Wyatt learn that? Wyatt learned that because his dad says it and his grandfather says it, right? And he didn't try to learn it. Wyatt did not try to learn this. Two-year-olds don't try to learn things. We try to get them to learn things, but he learned this by being around it. I remember when I was teaching my 12th graders at Covenant School, I was at Covenant School for 14 years as chaplain and chairman of the Bible, and I taught seniors. And uh, I, I, I can remember teaching them about life and marriage at one point in the, in the curriculum. And I said, one of the scariest moments as a parent, you ready, is when you see your child do that thing or show that attribute about that, uh, show that attribute that you hate most about yourself. They've caught it, right? You didn't teach it to them. Well, actually, you did, Right? They've caught it. They're, they're imitating us. Now, imitation can be studied, but imitation can also be automatic. Let's consider that in our text. Our text is Ephesians chapter 1, sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. It's a very short verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to take this apart into its pieces. Now, whenever you see a verse that starts with a conjunction like therefore, right? Whenever you see a verse that starts with therefore, or so, or thus, or any of those kinds of things, you have to look back because you have to understand the context from which it came. Well, because this is not a series in just a single sermon, I want to give you just a synopsis of the book of Ephesians in its greater context, so that we can get a feel of of what was Paul, who wrote this book from prison in Rome, what was he trying to do? So, who are the Ephesians? Well, on, on the third missionary journey, Paul spent over two years in Ephesus. In 2003, I landed in, in, in uh, Istanbul, and, and my, my colleague met me, and we went to his home, and he says, okay, so you're here, what do you want to do? I said, I, said, I want to be in Ephesus on my birthday. See, Paul is my hero. Okay, and he goes, when's your birthday? And I said, on Wednesday, it was Monday. So the next day we got in this van and we drove cross country and we woke up on my birthday in Ephesus and we saw this city in which Paul spent as much time as anywhere else on the missionary journeys, actually more. 
Over two years, the text tells us, and he invested deeply in this place. And this is a place of mixed race, and it's a, a place of Jew and Gentile. And that's significant because the Jews and the Gentiles, you know, they didn't get along, right? And there was a lot of stuff, and there were Romans, and there were Greeks, and there were people from the East, and because Ephesus was, was a center of kind of religion. And Paul spent a lot of time there, and God used him to bring himself glory, God's glory, while he was at Ephesus. And incredible things happened. We can't talk about all of that now, but I want you to remember this. The, the first thing that I want you to remember is that Paul wrote to a mixed-race church to point to the need for unity. Not uniformity, right? But unity. So that was on the third missionary journey. Later in, the missionary, later in that same missionary journey, Paul uh, had gathered up some money and got with some, with some of his colleagues, and they were headed to Jerusalem to take some help to the church in Judea. But on the way, they stopped on the beach outside Ephesus, and the elders came from the church in Ephesus. And this is how much Paul loved them. He made an extra stop. He talked to them. They prayed together, and they wept because they thought, man, this is the last time we're going to see each other, right? And he gave them some encouragement and some exhortation, and, and he wanted them to understand how much he loved them and give them some last thing, and then off he went. And where did he wind up? Two years in jail in Caesarea, and then the, the trip to Rome. Why? Because he appealed to Caesar. Why? Because he was a Roman citizen, and he could. And God used his Roman citizenship all throughout the journeys. So Paul winds up in jail, house arrest in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar that he had asked for. Okay? Under house arrest. So all of that business with Paul being in Ephesus was probably in early 57, Paul's now in Rome, he's under house arrest, and either in 60 or 61, he writes three letters, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. He sends them with a guy, and he says to the Ephesians, I want you to pursue unity because of what God has done, and as you pursue unity, these are the things you do. That's the, sort of the, the global picture of the book of Ephesus. It has two parts. Part one is theological, chapters 1 through 3. It's kind of like Romans, where Romans is is 1 through 11 is is theological and 12 through 16 is practical, right? Ephesians is kind of like that in that 1 through 3 is theological, though it's not as theological, so to speak, as Romans. It is theological. And then chapters 4 through 6 are more practical in nature. This book has a different tone than much of Paul's writing. Because it's before First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, which are written much later in his second imprisonment, it's like his last letter before those pastoral letters. And he's been at this for like 30 years, this ministry, where he's been, read the autobiographical stuff of Paul, he's been through all kind of stuff, and there's a maturity in his tone and because he's writing to really what is a mature church. Because one thing that sets Ephesus apart from other letters like the Corinthian correspondence and Galatians is that it's not reactive, right? Not dealing with problems as Corinthians and Galatians do. But it's proactive. And that's the beauty of it. That's what sets it, makes it different. Significant texts in Ephesus are Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace, for it is by grace alone that you are saved 
through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Right? And then in chapter 4, he gives the great offices of the church, which build up the church. In chapter 6, we have the armor of God. And if I may give you a little point to write down, pray the armor of God. Go to chapter 6, find the armor of God, and pray that all the time. I'm telling you. So, Paul's writing this letter, and in chapter 4, he shifts... Let me just say one thing. Let me describe one through three. It is hope-filled. Chapters one through three are hope-filled, God-glorifying, poetic, and they culminate with a target of unity among diversity as opposed to uniformity. I have some rules uh, in, 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 in mission that I used to lead a whole lot of students and student groups on mission, and, and I outgrew that. Actually, I got too old for it, if the, if the truth is, is known. Uh, but but I, had, I have some rules, and when I put new missionaries on the field on occasion, I have the first three rules, the first two rules really, really important, and I want you to get these two rules. You ready? Number one, bring no expectations to a different culture, and that culture won't disappoint you and you won't get frustrated. I had a missionary uh, couple that went to do theological education in Croatia, and, and I used to call him my poster boy for rule one because he was always frustrated, because he always got discouraged, because the culture always did not live up to his expectations. I said, well, what do I keep telling you, man? You know, and, 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 and so rule one is really a good rule. I can remember talking about this in class one time, and my students, I had to, somebody called me to the office. I went to the office. I came back to my classroom, and they were debating, is Mr. Foley a realist or a pessimist, or what is that all about, you know? <laughs> Bring no expectations to a culture, and it won't disappoint you. Let it be, right? Which brings us to rule two, and this is particularly important with regard to food in another culture, okay? It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different, you know? This, is also, this will also help us to uh, fight against discouragement if we recognize that we don't need to be judging something better or worse. It's just different. Let's just live with that. So chapters 1 through 3 have these wonderful, wonderful uh, teachings in them. And then we come to chapter 4. He gives us the, the, the leadership of the church. And then we come to chapter 4, verse 17 through 5, 2. And I'd actually like to read that for you. This is chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. Kind of an unfortunate break of the chapter numbers there. Now this I say and testify to the Lord, in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Do their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Remember, he's writing to a mature church that is surrounded by all kind of religious stuff, okay? Keep that in mind as you think about what he says in Ephesians. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Let me just give you a note to to put down. Go read Colossians 3 in context of that statement. Put off and put on. And be renewed 
in the spirit, get this, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a whole new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed For the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then we come to our text. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So point, big point one is that, that Paul, the context of the book is to, to preach unity in the greater church or the universal church or the Catholic church as the creed says. Point two is the, the, the parts. Therefore pointed us back. Now we come to the word be. This is the, this is the imperative verb in the sentence. This is the, the action word. Be. Right? It's simple. Do this. What do we be? Imitators. Now, this, this word is really fascinating. Um, some translations translate it followers, and that's great. But the root word is actually like our, our word mimic. The Greek word actually leans us toward the word mimic. And what we think of there is someone who does, a comedian, for example, who does impersonations, studies a person, does a personation of them, I can do a really good impersonation of my doctoral supervisor, and he doesn't think it's good, but everybody else says, no, he's got you. Because yeah. when you've been around someone a lot, you can imitate them. You get a hint of where I may be going with this yet? Great movie last year, I think it was last year, The Darkest Hour, about Winston Churchill. I don't know if any of you saw that. Gary Oldman played Winston Churchill. Oldman studied Churchill for a year before they began shooting. He read biographies. He read books about Churchill. He met with family. He visited Blenheim Palace where he was born. By the way, one of my covenant school trips, we cleaned Churchill's graveyard one time, you know, as a, as a community service out, out by Oxford, which is where he, where he was born nearby. Blenheim studied Churchill for a year And let me tell you something, as someone who is a Winston Churchill fan, has read a lot of biographies and read his own writing and seen film of Winston Churchill, Oldman nailed Churchill. Big time. He got the BAFTA, which is the British Best Actor, the best British thing. He got the Golden Globe Best Actor. He got the Oscar for Best Actor for this role because he studied Churchill so much. He He was an excellent mimic of Churchill. Which makes me ask this question. How good of a mimic am I of God? See, I do study God. 
And, but there's a difference between this study of God and this understanding of God. In his great book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, Packer says that, that we must be careful that we don't just know about God, but that we know God. See, I don't want to be Gary Oldman as Churchill. I want to be, with regard to God, right? I want to be my grandson who does it naturally, whose mimic, whose imitation comes naturally because I've spent so much time with God that it has just kind of rubbed off on me. And this is what Jesus is saying to us when he says, abide in me. Twelve times in a paragraph, he says, abide in me. How do we mimic God? That's the big question. Remember that this phrase, be imitators of God, is an imperative. Paul is speaking, he's not making a suggestion, y'all. All right? He's not going, listen, if you got time, if you can work it in on Sunday morning. That is not what he's saying here. This little phrase at the end of the verse, as beloved children, is also very important for our understanding. As beloved children is a phrase in the Greek which indicates a teacher speaking to his best and beloved students. Now, I was a teacher for 16 years, two years before Charlottesville and 14 years here. And I can tell you, I'm a human and I have favorites. Okay? Any teacher that thinks they don't have favorites doesn't know what they're doing. No, they, doesn't know that they don't know themselves very well. I, I think every teacher's got favorites. And most of my favorites were people with whom I engaged. And guess what? You know what's, what's really interesting? And young Mr. Sawyer might find this interesting. It was my antagonistic to Christian students that I engaged with best. It was the kids in our school who were there for reasons other than getting to know Jesus. It was the kids in our school who didn't have a big Christian background, who were like challenging me on theological and philosophical. I loved engaging with those guys because that was real conversation. They were my beloved children, I would call them. Saw one of them recently and I was so excited, you know, 10 years ago. And we were talking very briefly at Bodo's, and, and it, was, it was exciting to see that beloved's children, that beloved child, that beloved student. This is a phrase that a discipler, as a master, as a rabbi, rabbi would say to one of, his, one of his favorite disciples. Who's saying it? Paul. Who's he talking to? Ephesians. Remember? Weeping in tears on the beach because he loved them so much? But this phrase also is related to the word disciple. This word child has a relationship in the original to the word disciple. Listen, when the Holy Spirit inspires the Bible, he knows what he's doing with language, okay? He knows how to use words, and he knows how to use the education and the experience of, of the writer to put the right thing down. This is all about discipleship. So the way we imitate God is to hang out with God. Like my grandson learned how to say, oh man. Disciple-making. This is point three if you're doing notes. Who do we look to for our disciple-making method? Well, as much as I love Paul, you don't look to Paul for your disciple-making methodology, okay? I mean, you can, but he is not the man. Who is the man 
when it comes to disciple making? Anybody want to venture a guess? It's Jesus. And when Jesus made disciples, and I spent a year in Alderman Library studying the disciple making of Jesus within the context of the first, uh, within the context of of rabbinical Judaism, and when Jesus made disciples, what we learn from the Gospels as Jesus made those disciples is that Jesus didn't make disciples much differently than all the rest of the Pharisee teachers around him. The system was very similar, and it was a matter of being together all the time, memorizing things testing what the memory has, going and doing, coming back and talking about it, debriefing in other words. And we see this all throughout the Synoptic Gospels as well as the Gospel of John, but not quite as much because John's a gospel of theology. We learn in this wonderful text, the Great Commission. Did you know, I don't know how many of you have heard this, um, the Great Commission is when Jesus says, go into the world. Well, actually what Jesus said was, as you're going. Now, this afternoon there's an outreach in that neighborhood, right? You can have an outreach in your neighborhood. You can have an outreach in your... But the the word outreach may give us uh, kind of an intentional program kind of a thing where what Jesus is saying with as as you're going is wherever you are. As you're walking, as you're traveling, do these things. But what did he say to do? He says in Matthew 28, 19, or 20, which is the, the, the big picture uh, Great Commission, he says in Matthew 28, uh, 19, or 20, he says, As you're going, make disciples. Make disciples is what the Great Commission is. And then he tells us how to do it baptize them, bring them into community. I'm so excited to be here on a Sunday where. You've got so many people coming into membership, coming into community. Baptizing is bringing people into community. Second, teach them everything I've commanded you. Now, commanded you is an interesting word. Scribe comes up to Jesus. Master, what is the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor. But he didn't stop there. Later on, he said, love your enemy. And then he said, love one another. Talking to the church, as I have loved you, and they will know you are disciple, my disciples by what? Your love. Love. And he's using this word love. It's, it's, it's not an emotion. It's not, oh, be all romantic about your pastor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Be kind-hearted and gentle and loving and understanding when the guy drives you nuts. I used to teach my students when we were talking about marriage, you know, back in that that same unit, we we, we were talking about marriage. And when I did premarital counseling, I'd say, you guys got to lose this romantic vision of love. You're not always going to feel love, y'all. There are going to be times when you feel lots of emotions and love is one of them. Love is a decision. It's an imperative verb. Right? It means do something. It means pray for it. It means serve. It means do the things that will help them when you don't feel like it. That's love. I was in a conference um, 
in a Middle Eastern country a couple of years back, and we were, it was among Christian theologians, but some of them were from uh, Arab background, and, and there was just a lot of, there was a lot of Jew-Gentile thing going on, right? And there was a lot of anger being spewed forth. And I, you know, the question and answer, I always, I always challenged him on this thing. And then finally this one guy comes up. And he's not a theologian. He's not a practicing theologian teaching in a, in a Bible college anymore or a seminary. He's a pastor. And he said, you know what I realized? About the trouble in the Middle East between the Arab and the non-Arab, the Christian and the Jew and the, and, and, and the, and the Muslim is that Jesus told me to love my enemy. And you know what? Sometimes my enemy is my neighbor. And we're not talking about the enemy who cuts his grass the wrong way, y'all. Okay? We're talking about real enemy. Oppression. Hatred. And yet this guy said, this, this Arab Christian pastor said, Jesus tells me to love my enemy. And sometimes my enemy is my neighbor. We live in a city that's... I travel around the world and say I'm from Charlottesville. I used to confuse it with Charlotte. No more. We're on the map, y'all. And if there was ever a message for this city, it's this. Jesus died to save. Jesus died to bring unity, not uniformity. Jesus died that we may love one another and taught us how and enabled us to do that. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That happens through becoming a disciple and practicing personal discipleship. Jesus says, go and be, Jesus says, you're going to be disciple makers. Make disciples. You know, if you're not going to be a disciple, please don't make any. Okay? I beg you. If this is the extent of your Christian activity, yes, bring people here, but please don't teach them to do just that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher and evangelist in in London in the 19th century, said this. He said, on any day I will not have a conversation of significance with any man until I've had a conversation of significance with God. George Mueller in Bristol, England, in the earlier 19th century, said, I must have two hours with God or else no one can stand me. I stand here guilty of that now before you. Are you sitting with God at the, at the beginning of the day? Are you practicing spiritual disciplines? Love to come back sometime and, and teach you about the spiritual disciplines, but I can't today. What I want to teach you right now is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Because you see, in chapter 5, verse 2, the next verse after our verse this morning, he says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant, look, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Some four-ish years earlier, Paul wrote to the Corinthians his third or fourth letter. We call it 2 Corinthians. And he said, thanks be to God. Chapter 2, this is 2 Corinthians 2 for you taking notes. Chapter 2, verses 2, 14 and following. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ, listen, always leads us 
in triumphal procession. Remember the follow thing? Imitators are followers. We're following behind Jesus. Triumphal procession. Not, oh, woe is me, procession. Triumphal procession. And through us, here it comes, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us spreads the knowledge of him everywhere. I was uh, doing a bunch of summertime conference and camp preaching in Hungary and Croatia. And my base was in Budapest at the home of a friend who was in America. And on the way from his house to the light rail that took me into the center of the city, there was this bakery. And it was early in the morning and there was this smell. And what did this fragrance make me want? It made me want to eat that bread. What does our fragrance make people want with regard to God? Are we kind and tender-hearted? Are we loving intentionally our neighbor who might be our enemy? Are we giving up our own rights for those of others? Are we trying to not live in uniformity but to live in unity with those who are different from us? Is that our fragrance? I sure hope so. Let's you and I follow Jesus so closely. Not an Oscar winning performance by someone who's faking it, but like a little two year old who says, Oh man, let us catch the fragrance of Jesus by abiding in him. Let us climb up into the lap of, of the Father in prayer, as Calvin put it, and, and, and em, embrace God in such a way that we feel and are changed by him. Let us imitate God naturally. Let us spread the aroma of God that makes people hunger for that bread. so that we may give him glory in our neighborhood outreaches and in our workplaces and at school and wherever we are. Close with a great prayer from Ephesians 3. Join me in prayer, please. Father, for this reason we bow our knees before you from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named your great name, O God. That according to the riches of your glory, O God, may you grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit into our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you, being rooted, my friends, rooted and grounded in love, May we have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and width and height and depth and to know the love of Jesus that surpasses understanding. That you may be filled, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
Thank you, Tom. If you don't mind, hit the little button on the